remember everybody else. I remember Micah. I remember Bill Pullman returning. And yeah. Even Brent Spiner's ass. Um, <laughs> but I can't remember Liam Hensworth over Brent Spiner's ass. So that I'd, says something. I'd, this film was convinced that it was going to have another film. Yeah, that is one of the most limp. I mean, it is the movie equivalent of a guy accidentally sticking his dick in an ass when he thought he was going up the vagina because it is so off track. Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, I'm not so sure how I feel about the uh, the performance of the lead lead character uh, who who is played pretty well for the most part by Andrew Garfield. Yeah. He's uh he's an interesting character for sure, an interesting portrayal. Felt a little Forrest Gumpy, but not as relatable. And yeah, <laughs> that's the perfect way to describe it. <laughs> the worst ending that I've seen this past year was Sully because what the fuck was that? Oh man. That whole movie was like what the fuck was that? But then the Well, ending, I wish it would happen in July. <laughs> that bullshit right there. That's exactly why that was the worst ending for me. I was just like Oh man. Why? And, and it just I forgot fades, about that. It just fades to exactly you yeah. forgot about it. It's like I'm just glad you brought this fades up. to black. The bird uh, eating away at uh, the mother's nipple is really something. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I have to admit, my sexuality Ooh. was born that day. Yeah. I, I don't want to say I'm a nervous wreck, but... <laughs> it's Edward Norton, too! That's, uh, this fucking guy! That's really, that's really fucking... Damn it! That's fucking me up right I, 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 I was in one Woody Allen movie, and now I'm casted in this shit. I don't get it. I, I, I have a reformed mental state. I mean, I used to think that the, the, the black population shouldn't exist, but then, then I was raped in prison, and I, I, now I, I have completely different thoughts. I, my brother, save him. Yeah, he still, <laughs> still got that fucking huge swastika tattoo. Oh that God, sucks. Stop. Remember the time I curb stomped somebody? <laughs> Why is this flashback in black and white? Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss each host's top six films of 2016. He calls me the bionic woman. Is that a compliment? I hear your parents are dead. If you ever bully or hurt anybody again, I'll come back and butt fuck your father with your mom's headless corpse. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everybody, and welcome back into Film Tank. This is episode 101, and I am your host, Alex Diekman. We along, back. along with Tucson Egan. We back! Yeah! We back! All right. Whitest black person ever. We back! Yeah! And Nick Cheney also here. Yes, hello. It's <laughs> the usual reaction. I'm the blackest white person here, I think. Oh, shit. Oh, boy. You know what? Just because you went to go see I Am Not Your Negro. Whoa. We don't say that word at this table. That's... What? 
Tucson, go sit outside. You know what? No. I was going to say something, but there's no way it wasn't going to sound racist. Yeah. So I'm just going to leave it. You know what, Alex? I really appreciate it. I will say, I having say. Sam, Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> narrate <laughs> I Am Not Your Negro and, in effect, James Baldwin's writings, um, it's not the greatest argument to make if you want to <laughs> push against the envelope and and not suggest that all black people are the same when you have the most recognizable black person ever. You know what? I <laughs> wow. Um, Just say. You know, I actually have to agree with you. <laughs> like, who's the most recognized? Samuel Jackson. What? Who are you saying is the most recognizable? Samuel Jackson. Oh, He's one of the most recognized. I mean, obviously. Yeah. I'm not going to say D, but just... Yeah. Say, like, over Martin Luther King? I mean, I like, contemporary yeah. entertainers. Oh. Yeah. I got what you were saying. Yeah, thank you. It could have either been Samuel Jackson or Morgan Freeman. If you're Jackson going to cast a black Mar- person... Morgan Freeman. If there's going to be a black person in a movie today, Denzel's usually picky for some reason. Um, who else do we have? Don Cheadle, I guess, is kind of... I don't know. After crash, he kind of crashed and burned. Uh, <laughs> um, have Sam guy. Jackson is should have had a white guy. S- should, but no. But Sam Jackson jo- jo- you know and everything. Can I fucking finish? This is a, a rousing start to our top <laughs> I just, six. Episode I was just going to say Sam year. Jackson has been in everything from the shitty RoboCop remake mm-hmm. to continuing uh, his relationship with Quentin Tarantino. Like, yeah. There's nothing he won't do. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Josh Lucas should have done it <laughs> because Glory Road. He does a great job narrating those Home Depot commercials. Ooh. So <laughs> he would have been a perfect one. Yeah. On this episode, uh, our first into the 100 series here on Film Tank, uh, we are going to each go through our top six films of the 2016 calendar year. And uh, this was a really fun two-part episode we did last year because we did the top six of the year. And then on the second part, we went through uh, 12 different categories that we each gave a uh, a favorite or a least favorite for something. And uh, we're doing the same thing this year because there will be a second part. Uh, there's actually going to be 15 categories this year, 15 not 12. episodes. Oh, well, boy. Uh, so it, it's grown a little bit, but, you know, just kind of. So have we. I, it's true, except for in height. We're all still the same. Speak for yourself, losers. So, who would like to start off? Mm. I guess Nick would like to start off. <laughs> so go ahead, man. What is your number six? My number six is a movie I rewatched last night just to make sure that it's in my list. And it is. It completely held up. And it is David Lowry's remake of Disney's Pete's Dragon. Uh, oh. Although I, I hesitate to call it a remake because it really doesn't share much in common with the original film from what I remember um, other than there's a dragon and there's a boy named Pete Um, but no this movie is like the epitome of what a good children's film uh, is I mean it is seriously touching Um, the casting in it is pretty perfect from Robert Redford in a wonderful supporting role even Bryce Dallas Howard doesn't feel like a poor woman's Jessica Chastain here Um, and especially the casting of uh, the boy who plays Pete um, is fantastic and from start to finish it is just it's the kind of movie that if I ever have children I would not 
wait. I couldn't wait until I could show them this movie because I just think it's one of those where it's not a children's film that tries to subvert the idea of like children's entertainment. Like it is just a fun adventure, but it's one with so much more soul than we're used to seeing. Um, yeah, and there's a great folk rock soundtrack, so that always gets me. I was gonna say that's right up your alley. It is, um, and even oh, uh, speaking of casting. Part people I don't really care for, but I like in this movie is uh, Carl Urban as the semi antagonist. Like there has to be an antagonist, but he's also not like the world's worst person type thing. So, mm. yeah, it's um, I'm kind of amazed that so many people slept on this one. So I urge anybody and everybody to at least give it a try because I guarantee there'll at least be a few moments that you'll get a kick out of. But for me, it was just one of the happiest I've felt watching a movie. That's good. Yep. Very good. Moving on to Jusan. Okay, so number six on my list is Green Room. Okay. Yeah. I was absolutely taken aback uh, with this film when I first saw it. I thought it was absolutely terrifying. It was a uniquely terrifying film. Um, just watching this amateur punk band. Like, to say go- Professor X playing a Nazi. Yeah, playing a Nazi and going up against like this, this amateur punk band going up against... Uh, an entire army of red lace Nazis who will cut their arms off and just murder them. It was it was absolutely intense. I love the the color grading. I love the action. Um, it was tense. It was exciting. It was terrifying. It was it, it, it was everything that I wanted that film to be. And uh, Anton Yelchin was a uh, apart from uh, his his recent death. I thought that he did a great job in that film. It's not something that was that was elevated because of his death. It's just like he, it's, it, it just brings to mind the fact that he was a great actor. Was that, now his death was after Green Room came out. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Because we saw it before he had passed yeah, away, I we believe. Did. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it, it was, it, it's definitely up there with my, with my top for this year. Actually, a, a fun little footnote for Green Room uh, Megan Blair, who's uh, been a, yeah. a cornerstone in, both the Jeremy Saunier films Green Room and Blue Ruin, uh, his directorial debut uh, won the top prize at Sundance this year. So oh, that's, uh, good. Yeah. that's exciting for I him. I, yeah. it's, uh, he's got such a weird screen presence. Not weird in an insulting way, but yeah. like I never would have looked at him in Blue Ruin and thought that he would like continue. I, I just thought he was somebody that just was in Jeremy Saunier's film because he needed to maybe like just get that... like the casting out of the way so we could actually go out to make the movie but mm-hmm. no he's actually really good at his craft so apparently he's a good director too yeah which is uh which is exciting it's, and um it's definitely a film I, the name is totally blanking on me right now but uh, it's definitely a film when i read the description of it that i would be interested in even before yeah. hearing its accolades yeah, so, so that's sure. uh that's good yeah I will say I love Green Room as well. It's yeah. Not in my top six, but mm-hmm. uh, I could rewatch that movie any day. And I will say this. I don't think, like, if if we had a category, which we don't, so I'm going to say this. If we had a category for just movie of the year, <laughs> I don't think there is any <laughs> movie more deserving than a bunch of young liberals trying to fight their way out of Nazis' headquarters. Like, it is scarily prescient and um, just completely brutal uh, with a nice dose of optimism at the very end of the tunnel. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Green Room was one of those for me that just got caught in this weird space of I loved so many things but felt so indifferent about so many others. Were you missing the... 
the buzz from uh, Home Alone in it. Isn't he in Blue Ruin? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was making sure I got the right guy. It, he's, uh, he, I think he's in a really random scene. Like, he's out with uh, Megan Blair's character, like, uh, showing him how yeah. to shoot a gun or yeah. something. He's and, basically, yeah, yeah, he goes to him to, like, get ready for his final yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's a real bizarre <laughs> showing. Oh, but, yeah, Green Room is just kind of a really... I felt like it started off strong, and then it was not so great, and then there's a really strong scene towards the end of the film, and I... Remember really disliking the very ending yeah. of it, and mm-hmm. just yeah, it was just kind of all over the place. But I'm glad you really loved it because yeah. it definitely is a film that I could see anybody um, just enjoying immensely. Yeah. Also, before we were to move, I just also want to say, and what a note to sadly end on for Anton Yelchin. Um, you can't really make a better like performance to kind of leave your mark with i think yeah I think as far so. as like that this came out in his final year yeah. uh here it's at least he went out with a very had, big he, bang he had star trek too but like this is def- this is the yeah. film that's not not to discredit his his work in, in the star trek film but this is more of like a prominent acting role yeah. than it is sort of like a genre ensemble role. although it's way more indicative of what we lost in right. oh, yeah. Chip. yeah although um as we did talk about on the episode uh, his character was a lot more of a presence in Star Trek Beyond than True. he was in the previous two films. True. Yeah, so. True. So, yeah. so that was a good thing to see, but yeah, yeah. too bad. Poor guy. So my number six uh, was a film that myself and Nick saw at the Sundance Film Festival that I absolutely love, mm. uh, and it is called The Intervention. Ah. Um, and I remember seeing this film for the first time, and it was actually the first film we saw at the festival, and I just thought it was absolutely hilarious, and I pretty much fell in love with this film when we first... Uh, sat down and watched it, and I've seen it twice since, and uh, it's still pretty much right at the same place that it, that it started at. It is just a very uh, fun and uh, somewhat soulful film that that some of its beats are a little bit off, uh, but uh, a lot of the drama, especially uh, later in the film, I feel like hits pretty well at certain points. But for the most part, this film is this high on my list because I thought this was the most genuinely funny film that I saw this year. Uh, maybe because it had a lot of sarcastic comedy in it that really more resonates with me than slapstick or some shit like you would see in something like Sausage Party or something like that. But uh, a lot of really strong performances You don't here. like Sammy Bagel Jr.? <laughs> Wow. That, and that was that was Edward Norton doing that Jewy voice, right? Oh, he did it was. Yeah. Oh, he did was. Um uh, something about this film that uh most people comment on if they see it is it's pretty much right up there in the same kind of category with something like The Big Chill. Uh but a lot of really strong performances uh, in this ensemble film and a, a solid directorial debut for Clea Duvall, who's had kind of a middling acting career, but uh, she did a really nice job here. And there is actually, uh, for being a film that has a lot more, I don't want to say reserved comedy, but a lot of sarcastic beats throughout, there is actually a pretty funny physical uh, comedy bit about halfway through uh, that goes on for about five minutes. It's actually really good. So uh, this was a fantastic film, and uh, it doesn't have a lot of very strong ratings, and not a lot of people have seen it. But uh, if you get a chance any time, if it ever ends up on Netflix, I would highly recommend it because it is uh, quite an enjoyable little hour-and-a-half film to watch. I agree with you. Um, I mean, obviously, I didn't necessarily like it as much as you, but I 
Like it's, I think it's such a good crowd pleaser in the sense that I could recommend it to anybody, and I would yeah. hope that they get something out of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a film that it's definitely one of the films that we saw at the festival that made me want to see Clea Duvall's second film if she ever yeah. gets a chance. So, yeah. and uh, a pretty highly praised performance from Melanie Linsky, who's becoming a Sundance <laughs> regular. I saw she was in yeah. the. Uh, she was in the Making Blair Make film. Yep, she's yeah. the protagonist in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's fantastic in that movie. By the way, she was somebody I was almost considering for one of our categories. Okay, mm. uh, even if I don't love the film, but like you can't deny her uh, <laughs> just exemplary performance in that movie. Absolutely, she won uh, Best Actress, I believe, at the festival last year. So totally deserved. Uh, most people thought at least she put on a, a great performance. Where I thought everyone was really good, actually, for the most part. <laughs> Moving on to number five. And back to Nicholas. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my number five is... Are you ready? Are you ready? Yes, I am. It is titled, Un Monstruo de Mil Cabezas. Which, which translates to... <laughs> a Monster with a Thousand Heads. Okay. Uh, this is a Mexican thriller film. Uh, and this... You know, people cited Green Room as, and I like Green Room a lot. Yeah. But, like, that is, like, the tension movie of the year. But this blew that out of the water. And that's coming from someone who loved Green Room. But um, this is, like, if John Q was a good movie. Because uh, <laughs> it, it centers around a woman who was is denied uh, health insurance for their spouse, who's, uh, she, he's clearly dying, but he could get a treatment that could possibly work, whatever. And due to whatever stupid bureaucratic rules, she's denied it flat out. So she takes matters into her own hands, uh, with a gun and, uh, determination to, oh. get, to get it solved. And it is like 70 minutes long. I mean, it is just this nail biter to see if she can get a paperwork stamped. Um, and it's fantastic. The editing, moves around and not in necessarily a way to make it more cool, but to just continually disorient the viewer because, you know, as you go on this journey with her, it gets more and more sickening, not because she becomes the worst person, but because you're just trying to figure out how deep is she going to get while still remaining pretty sympathetic overall, because she really is just a person trying to do right by uh, her husband. And it's just from there, it's, there's some of the, I mean, I gasp at us at one of the scenes that just happened because it, one of those rare moments in movies where I felt like what was happening on the screen was completely disconnected from like the script like it was just existing and i and i just didn't realize that until actions happen and and you know you see the full cause of effect it and, was that engrossing yeah and uh, you know in this day and age i think it's even aged well even under this year that it's been out because as we fight for free health care and such like it's it shows that if you you know legislation in one area will just uptick uh, the results you don't want to see in another, you know, crime goes up, healthcare goes down, that kind of thing. And, mm. um, it's just a very potent movie. I, mm. I highly recommend, especially you, even if you don't like foreign language movies, I mean, it's 70 something minutes. It's a thriller. It, you really can't go wrong with it. And it, it was just the most involved I was from like start to finish needing to finish it. And, uh, yeah. And, and it was great because of that. There's no big twist. There's no, like, you literally know where this movie's headed from the first moment she picks up a gun. Um, but that's what makes it all the more sad. So, hmm. uh, A Monster with a Thousand Heads. Good stuff. Yeah, it's streaming in a lot of places. Oh, nice. Like, okay. on demand. That okay. Good. Yeah. Good stuff. On to Dusan. All right. So, my number five of the year 
um, is a film that I was highly anticipating before we went to go see it. And even months after having like done our episode on it, I still love it. And it is The Witch. Oh. I love The Witch. I love the message that The Witch has in its, its sort of... Nevertheless, com- they persisted. Oh, man. Not really. Oh, man. I mean, a man, she was, sh- she a man was, showed up. After he was a dog, yeah. or I'm sorry, a goat, yeah. and uh, took her yeah. and the rest of the women, and they danced naked by the fire and ascended Looked into in. hell? She was warned. She was given a reason, and nevertheless, she persisted. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of the, the best horror films of the year, in my opinion, just because it's not so much the, the horror of the supernatural, though that is obviously there, and, and it's, it's very much present, but it's more of like the horror of of groupthink of of superstition and how it can inadvertently push you to like to abide more evil than even true evil itself and i i think that was just just wonderful i love the i love the direction i love the cinematography i love the score and i absolutely love the lighting like when there there's that one scene where they're all eating together and like it's all lit by like a single candle it's just so beautiful it's so good yeah i i love the witch as well i never thought i would see something that would actually live up to the the hype well, the hype, but also I was going to say the phrase Kubrickian horror, because yeah. like, you know, a lot of people have tried to do that ever since The Shining. And while this is like certainly a much different film, mm-hmm. clearly um, it's in that same kind of slow dread uh, school of horror. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wish there were more movies like this, mm-hmm. and especially as good as The Witch. I also like the um, <clears throat> sort of connected tissue um, throughout the film where it, it, it's... I guess it, it, it's like a like a Chekhov's gun sort of way, where it's it's the father who is constantly chopping wood throughout the entire film and building this entire mountain of wood, only to invent, eventually like fight Black Philip and be murdered by that same that same mountain of wood. I'm just like, oh man, I was not expecting that, but as soon as it happened, I'm just like, oh, that's perfect. Fucking Black Philip. Fucking yeah. Black Philip. So that film. I'd rather uh, have him as president. I would. Yeah. Seems to at least have a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I will say um, that film definitely had something that was a runner-up for one of uh, my categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess it'll be a little spoiler of what one of our <laughs> categories was, uh, if that's okay with everybody, or yeah. would you rather not? Yeah. Uh, one of our categories uh, this year on the second part of the episode is the biggest WTF moment. <laughs> and the bird uh, eating away at uh, the mother's nipple is really something. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have to admit, my sexuality Ooh. was born that day. Yeah. Um, I, I hope was, this doesn't weaken something in me. Forever oh changed and aroused. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was something. The... Uh, the uh, the witch pretty much cleaning up the remains of the baby she had completely just How about the, na- the naked crone who's just convulsing in the corner in the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, that was fucking terrifying. And then you have uh, the, the film's ending, which this is a film that I'm kind of here and there on, not really love or hate, yeah. but... Uh, that ending and that sort of right before the very final scene, without a doubt, uh, just kind of the beginning of the denouement of the film when yeah. you actually see Black Philip transform and then deliver the famous line at the end of the film is just, uh, thou like see you in court? <laughs> <laughs> 
see you in court. The fate of our nation is at stake. Wow, Black Phil, that's really weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I love that. The actual line a lot, too. Um, <laughs> Which is? Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Oh, okay. I was close. Yeah. <laughs> this fucking guy. Oh, oh man. man, these episodes are going to be so dated <laughs> with our references. I was going to say, especially when this episode gets <clears throat> posted sometime in June. Oh. So hopefully, he'll be impeached by then. So, <laughs> remember that fucking guy, uh, Chucky, grown up. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. So, my number five. Uh, is a film that you guys both hated, so that's good. Oh, great. Uh, and that is oh. Fantastic Beasts uh. and Where to Find Them. Mm. Just wait, there's more coming that I know you guys both didn't like. <laughs> just, so, just wait. So uh, this film uh, took the Harry Potter universe to me and gave me something that I felt like was felt at least somewhat original, but still used the Harry Potter universe and also included things that I really like to see in these films, uh, including memorable characters, uh, specifically the characters played by Dan Fogler and Alison Sudol. Uh, they were kind of the supporting, a little bit comic relief characters, but I thought they both fit perfectly into what this story mm. in this universe tries to be. Uh, and also, I thought this film really actually utilized its CGI pretty well, other than the uh, the street scene, which looked terrible. But a lot of like the lightning and, and the use of the wands, I thought was really strong. Love the characters in terms of like the actual beasts or um, the magical characters, what I called them. Uh, specifically, the Niffler, who I've brought up multiple times because that little guy was fucking awesome. And you guys can both keep shaking your heads like grumpy old white men, but. I thought that was, <laughs> you know, maybe my heart is just a cold, dead, lifeless place. But I also, I think I, I Wait, to be I, fair, I, I will think, say, I think this is a great movie if you don't have time to watch Doctor Who. I yeah, I think so too. And you know what? I will say this: I think that I felt something when I watched this film. And I got something out of this film, and I think that was a migraine. So yeah. wow. <laughs> Well, thank you guys. Alex, please. Continue. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought this was supposed to be but, talking about things that we, we liked so much. But I'm then... glad that you got something out of it, and that's what's important. Yeah. No, and uh, you know, this is a film that I feel like I'll watch a second time down the road when another one of these films come out and wish that it had just stood alone by itself. Um, specifically with that character that Eddie Redmayne's playing that got a little more annoying as the film wore on because he's a terrible actor. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing that was a little weird is Catherine Waterston, who seemed like she didn't want to be there. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I thought she, her character slash performance was kind of out of the way for what the... But at the same time, you have Johnny Depp showing up looking like a fat white rapist at the end, so that's great. But yeah, there was so much here that I just straight up enjoyed and thought was, was fantastic and many... <laughs> Haha! Ha. Way, way to go. Many uh, characters and images that I just, um, looking back, enjoyed very, very much. So, yeah, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was a, was a really strong film this year, I thought, and uh, landed on my list at number five. Oh, fuck yeah. I was yeah. going to say, I don't think you guys either have anything to say about it really more, so. Well, my mom taught me, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. <clears throat> Moving on. To number four. Number four. All right. Number four is a comedy. 
It stars a woman. Good. Stars a man. Okay. <gasps> it was my most anticipated movie of Sundance, and it's Love and Friendship. Okay. Uh, I've watched this movie probably five times now, like including you know the, the festival itself. But I, I, it only gets better every time I see it. It, it is exactly what it is, and nothing more. And I think that's what might be slightly underwhelming to people, which I totally get. But for me. It's a culmination of seeing Whit Stillman reemerge onto the scene uh, in a way that he hasn't since probably the 90s, even though he's he's made one other film before this uh, in this decade, but it wasn't as good. And so here, he finally just says, fuck it, and he writes the Jane Austen uh, script that he's always wanted to, considering all his characters love Jane Austen in prior works. And so he just cuts out the middleman, and his uh, his script paired with... I I want to say this is the best uh, cast, I think, in a, any movie I've seen all year. Every single person, I think, is perfectly casted from Kate Beckinsale, who completely anchors the entire movie and um, just totally, I think, kind of claps backs to anybody who thinks she's just an underworld It's know, funny person. because uh, the last film before this that I remember Kate Beckinsale even being... Not necessarily being like that she was bad, but a film that she was in that was not total shit was all the way back to The Aviator in 2004. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about Underworld movies, Click, uh, Whiteout, Whiteout yeah, was... uh, the Total Recall remake. Yeah. I mean, just so much garbage. And yeah. then she puts on a fabulous like performance Because she is better than that. And yeah. she showed that in... Um, with Stillman's third movie, The Last Days of Disco. So I'm just glad they both kind of brought out the best in each other uh, this many years on. And, of course, um, Tom Bennett, um, like, that's how you do a supporting actor because he steals every scene and yet never actually overshadows the movie itself. Um, But from that, I mean, Chad, I I, I read a lot of... uh, reviews of people not like critic reviews but people just randomly saying like it's so confusing it's so whatever and sure the first five minutes are somewhat uh discombobulating because it is extremely fast english old rhetoric that you do have to kind of keep up with but um once once you've set foot in it it's pretty easy i think to I'm gonna say that at least the last i mean it's a pretty simple story yeah so it, and it is just magnificent. Every time I see it, I feel like I f- discover a new joke. Not because like it wasn't there before, but you realize that a line reading means something that you may have not caught the first time through. And it just oh god, like there was like the last time I watched it, I laughed a lot more at the insinuations of um of that what's uh, Lady Catherine throws at all of Federica's school teachers like that they can't teach her for shit and you know little things like that that just grow and rewatches so it's a movie I'm never going to get tired of and as a Whit Stillman fan considering Metropolitan had a huge influence on my entire uh, just career of watching movies uh, it was just fascinating to see and I love the fact that we got to see this movie with a theater of a thousand people laughing at little green balls and many other jokes. I was going to say, we saw this uh, in a sold-out theater at the the largest theater at Sundance, the Eccles. And uh, yeah, that was, a, that, was a, that was a treat. And that was, this is a film that definitely uh, surprised me that I liked it so much. Yeah, because I remember like, I almost like almost didn't take us to it because I was like I really don't think Alex is gonna like this because yeah. I was even kind of worried because I you know I'm not the biggest Jane Austen but I love with with Stillman and so but at least when we got to Little Green Balls I'm like oh this is for everybody. <laughs> 
and 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 I loved it. Quote of the year right yeah. there. Get the fuck out of the way, Black Phillip, and your delicious shit. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, Kate Beckinsale as Lady Susan is wonderful here. Um, as you already mentioned, Tom Bennett is is really good, and uh, a lot of people here. Um, I don't remember. I think it's I think it's Justin Edwards who plays um, Charles. Yes, the Charles. brother-in-law. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that's still uh, yes. the line that Kate Beckinsale delivers late in the film when he's walking through and he's got plenty of headspace. He's like, "Oh, please watch your head." Yeah. And it's just it's just little things like that that are just littered throughout the film that are just hilarious. I will say one thing I also laughed at a lot more the last time I watched it was how much I realized that there's the joke of him loving Tom Bennett's character, like mm-hmm. Sir James, because like I, I remember the first time I thought I thought it was just English chivalry, like just him being like, Oh, let's give him but no, he's just as stupid as Sir James, but he just doesn't talk as much. Yeah. So just every time that he would be like, Oh, I actually found him quite pl- pleasing and you know, it's every that just got better and better. So yeah, yeah and he, and he's great on a lot of shows that I love in Britain, like yeah. the thick of it. So Well and British humor isn't usually my thing and a lot of British people here delivering pretty standard even though it is yeah. written from the the Jane Austen. So yeah, this is just this is just a really strong film and I am glad it was as good as it was and I'm yep. glad we saw it. I'm glad it's so high on your list. Yeah, me too. And it also has the cardinal rule that comedy should try to follow more these days, which is it's an 80-minute comedy. Yep. That's all you need. You don't need a <laughs> fucking opus from uh what's his name? At least Judd Apatow. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I like those, but no. <laughs> You don't. Yeah, you don't need the last hour, most of them. Yeah. All right, Juzan, let's hear your number four. All right. My number four is Yorgos Lanthamos's The Lobster. I thought this was a beautiful and affecting, a surreal and, and disquieting film. I thought that Colin Farrell and Rachel Wise were wonderful in it. I thought that it had a lot of... A lot of... Power, powerful, implicit statements to say, Im- implicit and explicit statements to say about sort of the the somewhat outward transactional, like 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 state of relationships and why we go into relationships and why we 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 are are, are attracted to companionship and like what we take out of companionship and it just. it's just a wonderful it's a wonderfully like unnerving and hilarious film in its own right it just knows how to play it straight the entire way and i love it for that i agree i'm a huge fan of the lobster i would say it just narrowly missed my top six um particularly for everything you've said and because and that's the thing you hit on as far as it being completely straight face mm-hmm. is definitely the strongest asset because that's why you can watch it. And I can watch, I can totally see somebody watching this movie, not finding it funny mm-hmm. at all, but still loving it the same way. I could see somebody finding it hilarious and loving it for that reason. Like it just plays it so straight that it's either the saddest movie or the funniest movie you've seen yeah. or a little bit of both. You could take it as a comedy or as a very dour satire. A lot of great supporting performances oh, here, yeah. too. I mean, I'm not a huge John C. Riley fan, but he's really good here. Ben Wishaw plays a delightful character. And I actually thought Leia Sadu, who's becoming one of my favorite actresses uh, here in the last few years, I thought she put on a, a really stellar performance mm-hmm. here. Agreed. And also, uh, Olivia Coleman, yes. who normally in a lot of British productions is given a very, I would say, 
cheery kind of role or whatever. So it was pretty funny to see her do because like I could see Colin Farrell doing a straight face, you know, you know, serious whatever. But like for her to be singing on the stage with her husband with no emotion whatsoever, and a few of those other scenes uh, are perfect because of her. I think. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting film that also. Uh, brings something that is hard to grab uh, in, in this day and age, which is making something feel totally original, yeah. which mm-hmm. I feel like this film does. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think that the, uh, like I, I, I touched on it a little bit in the episode that we did for it, but the word Kafka-esque is, is, has sort of entered into like the canon of, 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 of our shared vocabulary as being overused and, and not incorrectly used to the point where it's just it's a joke in and of itself but i feel like this is the one unique situation that actually merits it being called kafka-esque and i feel like it deserves to be mentioned that way yeah how about the uh how about the awkwardness too of uh colin farrell and rachel weiss character uh making out on the couch while they're trying (laughs) to you know show to the parents (laughs) that they are but obviously alea studios character is it's like, what playing this game, but she's just what the fuck like, are you fuck? Leave yeah. her for Jesus. Seriously, I'm I'm going to cut your penis off after you leave here. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Well, good. I'm glad that's a that's a good selection, too. So definitely, yeah, for sure. My number four, uh, the last film that's on my list that I'm sure you guys both hated, uh, is La La Land. Uh, mm. Yep. Overall, a film that has been over the top praised by uh, a lot of critics. Um, the general feel that I get from people who've seen it, who are just standard moviegoers who just caught this cause they heard all everything about it. They, for the most part, really loved it. Yeah. Um, I think definitely a reason why I dug this so much and, and someone like Nick, um, who is definitely a deep cinephile and also loves musicals at the same time. Uh, is that I am not someone who's spent a lot of time in my film viewing career watching musicals. Yeah. And I've always kind of wanted to see more of a modern musical that feels more original, uh, which this did for some people, but for some people like Nick, who's seen hundreds of them didn't it felt different so can i just mention for our episode with la la land how impressed i was with like the the references that nick was able to pull like in (laughs) in in his in his dissection of that film like you are the musicals what i am to animation like that's just like that was i I gotta give props yeah they're pretty blatant but uh, (laughs) can i say one thing sure that's a weird detour but it'll take five seconds so remember about those references, I referenced that in the ballet sequence, um, you see was a reference to the short French film, The Red Balloon, with yeah. the kid in the red balloon. Yes. He's literally dressed the same way. Anyway, I, when I rewatched Pete's Dragon last night, I completely forgot, but there's definitely an allusion to The Red Balloon as well, because huh. it's kind of the go-to uh, cinematic reference, I think, for French pretension. Uh, <laughs> but when Pete wakes up in the hospital, there is a single red balloon oh. on his hospital yeah, bed, that's pretty and I, I can't believe it that's not uh anyway so a lot of red balloon references this yeah, year must have been a big year for the old red balloons <laughs> yeah, you know anyway. that those the uh the republican Peach convention Dragon, yeah. it makes sense because it's a story about a whimsical adventure a boy takes with a creature it made sense following this was also a musical come on <laughs> anyways um i really thought emma stone uh the more i thought about it, the more i thought she was actually really strong in this film uh ryan gosling which like is muscular 
Shut the fuck up. She was, she was definitely she was definitely Asian. That's for sure. She was for sure. Aloha. <laughs> but uh, uh, Ryan Gosling, and I guess part of it is that his character is kind of mopey, and, and that's what he's playing. But I, I feel like I could take or leave him for the most part. But I thought Emma Stone really was strong here. She did leave him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I now on the soundtrack to this, so I feel like the more times I go back and watch it, probably the more I'll enjoy the musical numbers because uh, a lot of the music that's used throughout, uh, and you know, although they do play that same song about six times, uh, I mean, that's going to be great at the Oscars because not only is that going to win for best original song, I'm sure... Uh, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling will perform that. So there you go. Glad that we're breaking tradition from the past couple of years, <laughs> and we're not watching the Oscars together. I'm sure Emily is because she's really looking forward to it because she absolutely loved La La Land. And I get to totally see fine. you okay. sitting there with your arms crossed, being like, "This shit! <laughs> Everybody who likes us is stupid. Get these fucking white people off my television." That does not sound like Nick. At all. What? <laughs> Now he'll just make some under the breath comment. Yeah, there you go. Um, More like blah blah land. I thought that a lot of the dance scenes actually, maybe everyone would disagree, uh, included really wonderful choreography, uh, specifically uh, the the girls' song, which is the second one that leads into the party. I, I, I really enjoyed the way that scene started and, and finished. And yeah, uh, a criticism that I still do hold for this, though, is that the, the dance numbers and the songs uh, sort of become less and less as the film goes on and then they pick up back again towards the end but uh definitely something that i wish was a little more flat throughout as it it uh progressed on the same kind of level but that being said this is a film that i was very much looking forward to and uh one of the only films that i was highly anticipating that we went and saw this year that i still enjoy very much so I thought this was a, still a fantastic film, uh, something that had a couple things that could have been done better, but um, just something that I was was glad to see. And in a, in a year that not only were there a lot of films that I was excited for that I got disappointed by seeing like a lot of them, and also Same. a year that was that was overall um, made me feel like just realistically just made me feel sad and a little bit helpless. Uh, see, I'm, for real, I mean, yeah. that's just kind yeah. of a thing yeah. now at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, just going to see a film that I felt was fun and enjoyable and made me feel happy. Right. You know, that probably made me like this just a little bit more. So, yeah. yeah. La La Land is number four on my list. We all need antidepressants. No shame in that. Yeah. So, uh, before we move on, uh, we're halfway through, mm-hmm. and I was thinking this would be a good time to perhaps do some films that just missed the cut on, on, on all of our lists, because there's always, yeah. uh, I know, Nick, you saw over 100 films. Yeah, I saw 108. 108. And I still have six in my cube, and I meant to watch. Well, well you know, there's only so much you can do. You know do. what? Why don't we pause this episode, mm-hmm. and I'll go... We'll come back when Got I'm done it. watching those six movies. Good, and we'll catch up with it. It'll oh, still yeah. be posted at the same time. So yeah, we've... there we go. And we're back. <laughs> yeah. I watched 66 films uh, from 2016, which is a, that's a big number for me. That's so good. Sundance had a lot to do with it. But yeah. still, uh, yeah. And I know, Tucson, you don't keep account because you're just kind of hit or miss on Letterboxd. I watched so. a shit ton of anime that I did not post on Letterboxd, <laughs> yeah. but like that was for another thing. So that doesn't count. Yeah. So um, I don't know... We don't need to have this be formal or anything, but 
Uh, I will say uh, there are three films that I wanted to mention uh, that did not make the cut that I, I really did uh, enjoy. Uh, the first one I'll mention first since I recently just saw it, and that was Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge, which I thought was, uh, for me, who's someone who's really into war movies, specifically ones that have been done uh, over the last 10 years or so, because I feel like there's so much you can do with melding together physical uh, special effects and CGI in a, in a war film setting if you do it right. Um, this film especially about halfway through just kicked it into high gear and, and gave me something to really enjoy. Even though, as I mentioned, uh, I'm not so sure how I feel about the, uh, the performance of the lead lead character uh, who who's played pretty well for the most part um, by why am I drawing a blank? Out Andrew Garfield. Yeah. By Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Um, but it's Mondays. Yeah. He's uh he's an interesting character for sure. An interesting portrayal. Felt a little Forrest Gumpy, but not as relatable. And yeah, that's the perfect way to describe him. I love he, you, soldier. He can even run fast. Just wanted to get one more, man. And uh, I thought it was just overall great. The sound editing, the the special effects, the explosions, and then actually a lot of the the character interaction earlier on. Some of it was bad, but some of it was was legitimately pretty good. Uh, the two other films, really quickly, I'll mention uh, one that I was extremely surprised by, which was Nerve, which was a which was a really really good film. I actually. enjoyed it, and it's a film that I never in a million years would have thought I would have liked. But uh, I thought, especially trying to grab what this generation is like while satirizing it at the same time. Uh, trying to tell a story throughout that is able to be followed and is interesting and actually has two decent performances by Emma Roberts and uh, James Franco, not James Franco, the other Dave. one, Dave Franco. Yeah, I like um, him. This was a surprise for me, and I, I'm glad we went to see in the theater, and I and own a Blu-ray, so yeah. there you go. There you go. And the other film I'll mention that uh, came close to just <laughs> jumping way up on my list, but I, I left it where it is for now since I've only seen it the one time. It's a film I keep thinking about the more as the uh, the time goes on, and that was Jackie, which I thought was a really mm. fantastic film with yeah. Natalie Portman uh, playing the role of Jackie Kennedy. So many great things in this film, whether it be her interactions uh, with all the different people throughout, whether it be uh, Peter Skarsgård or why am I drawing a blank? The guy who plays the interviewer. So many different. Billy Crudup. Yeah, Billy Crudup. Like this. That's why I keep Nick. That's right. uh, Everything about it, and now, obviously, with John Hurt passing away uh, and him putting on a, a really strong performance as well, um, I thought that was a fantastic film, and, oh. and one I'll definitely be seeing again when it comes out uh, on home. I remembered that. Did you? Yeah. yeah. that's a downer, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, Nick, you want to go next? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, where did I put my... There it is. Just got to check my list here. <laughs> there you go. Some of my... Yeah, so I want to name... Just literally name them, and that's it. A few that were very well talked about, so I'll just say that I also loved them, which were uh, I loved Everybody Wants Some. Um, I'm kind of surprised that it's actually not on my top six, because in theory I would probably rewatch it more than some of the movies I might have named. Okay. But in general, it's just another extremely wonderful effort from Richard Linklater. Yeah. Um, I also love the Neon Demon, but we don't have to talk about that because you guys suck. Um, <laughs> Wait, you're telling me that's not on your top six? No. <gasps> it's technically right now number nine. Wow. I know, okay. but I 
thoroughly loved it. I rewatched it to make sure uh, when it came out on Blu-ray, and it totally holds up. Hmm. Um, a few of it, I think, are being sleeped on as far as more people should talk about how great it is, even if they said they liked it when it came out. But it's Hail Caesar. I still think that's criminally underrated and got better uh, with the second viewing, uh, for me at least. Um, I also think more people should have talked about The Meddler, starring Susan Sarandon, which is just a fantastic comedy drama with very low stakes, but uh, extremely uh, vivid, beating heart, and just thought it was great. Um, I also think Popstar was the greatest comedy of last year, especially because we just uh, (laughs) elected a president who is... (laughs) Like, you watched Popstar back in the summer when that came out, and you were like, wow, this is parody. Huh, no one now could be you, that stupid. Now you watch it, and you're like, oh, this is satire. Yeah. And because, yeah, um, it's just celebrity martyrdom uh, at its finest, and I thought it was hilarious. Wow. Um, and also, people did not go out and see The Shallows for some reason. And I thought that was an extremely enjoyable movie in which a bikini-clad... Uh, What's her name? Blake Blake, Lively. Blake Lively shoots a shark with a flare gun. And if like that, like if that's not your definition of a good time, then please don't invite me to your party. Smile, you son of a bitch. Yep. <sighs> and uh, last but not least, a couple of foreign movies that I don't think, well, no, one might get talked about, so I won't talk about that one. But one of them, I finally did catch Tony Erdman this past weekend. And I think it absolutely, hey. <laughs> oh, God damn it. <laughs> Fuck you, Jack. Um, <laughs> But I absolutely think it lived up to the hype, and it's the movie on my list that I think has the most potential to to grow and go to another you know level. I could even see it being in my top six if I had more time to view it. But as of right now, it's uh, you know it's certainly an exhausting first time watch because it's two hours and forty minutes, and it's kind of a leisurely paced comedy, and that can certainly throw some people off. But mm-hmm. man, uh, is this is worth every uh, accolade and praise that gets thrown its way? It's really a charming and somewhat sad but ultimately wonderful movie hmm. so Tony Erdman was definitely great good stuff yeah what were some of your honorable mentions I have to say I'll echo two of your honorable mentions and add a third I really think that Everybody Wants Some was a great film yeah I think it was absolutely awesome yeah and I really enjoyed it it was just a fun film to watch especially as like a a period like college piece like yeah absolutely and uh there was like another one that you mentioned that jogged my memory pop star i'm sure not pop star um let me just look here it was in the vicinity of the neon demon hail caesar hail caesar hail caesar was awesome i love the musical like moments of that i love the the organized superficiality of it just because it was more of like a comment on on, on the mythos of Hollywood of that time, and I really enjoyed that. And I thought Josh Brolin had a um, a, a great starring role in I am well. 100% not kidding when I say that I think Hail Caesar succeeds as a musical where La La Land doesn't. Yeah. Uh, it, and that's a movie that's not even trying necessarily to be a musical. Okay. But anyway. Yeah. It's a movie that got uh, Han Solo his role, so way to go. Yeah. We what? might be talking about him soon. What's the tour so simple? Good God, man. What are you doing with your hands? Why are you doing that? Speaking of that film, I just saw that it wasn't... It's going to be a sequel. Uh-huh. It isn't Michael B. Jordan, is it, who is cast as Lando Calrissian? I'm trying to remember. Donald Glover. Donald Glover, okay. Yeah, I was... That's better. Yeah. I was going to ask Toussaint specifically about that, because I was assuming you would 
find yeah. that a good casting. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think it is. Um, I'm looking forward to what he offers to that role. You just want to see how he ends up uh, acquiring the cloud city, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah, but I also want to learn about the, the joke. Hashtag not my Spider-Man. I want to <laughs> learn the, the history about the millennium Falcon. And all that. I know that's so incidental and I, and I shouldn't care about it, but it's just like, I don't yeah. need to see it, but I'm just like, if you're going to have this movie, I'm just like, you might as well just explain what the fuck that, that whole be, bet was. It's going to be quite a downer when he gets recasted with Tom Holland again. <laughs> Great. Uh, hey, guys. I think, uh, We're just going to give him the Robert Downey Jr. treatment from Tropic Thunder. It'll be fine. I mean, Peter. I have one more honorable oh. mention, and I feel kind of weird about this just hey, because okay. I, I... I am not your Negro? I really wanted to see this film. I just... <laughs> oh, just, I, if you I, haven't I, seen it, that's no, great. Oh, wait, okay. wait, 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 <laughs> I can wait, see Tucson wait, doing wait, that. Wait, wait. I really wanted to see this okay. film, and I wasn't able to make it out to see it. And I only included it as an honorable mention because, like, as soon as it does come out on video, I'm no wait. You I, have not seen this film. I know that's going to be good. No, yep. so apparently yes. No, you haven't seen this. But he's honorable. This cannot be on your list. Though. It's not no, on no, my I list. I want to hear it. It's not on my list. I want to hear. That's it. why it's not on my list because I haven't seen it. Okay. No, no, no. It's Hideki Anno's Shin Godzilla. Okay. I heard that it was really good. I've I've heard from critics and fr- and friends and fans who are very much into Godzilla films that this is the Godzilla film that they have been waiting for. And so you're saying that-, that there was a good chance that would have been on your list had yeah. you seen it. Yeah. I think that's worthy of inclusion. I, you know, it's. But yes. Yes. Yeah. This so. film was also about Cameron's dream too, not about Ferris. That's so right. Really important. <laughs> Matthew Broderick reference really deep. Sorry, because he's in that really, really bad Godzilla. I know movie. that that's deep. <laughs> that's that's really deep in the earth. Okay, so um, <laughs> good stuff. Yep. All right. Good. 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 Uh, good mentions from everybody. Yeah. Like. Yeah. yeah. Except for Popstar, the movie. I don't think so. I like the movie. Good for you guys. Yeah. So, Nick, you're number three. By the way, we're not done talking about Popstar. God damn it. <laughs> My number three is Popstar. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, what the fuck. <laughs> My number just put on the list because of you, asshole. I will say my like this next uh, array of movies, my three through one are kind of almost all interchangeable. My number one is definitely my number one, but two and three are are two very different films that I could switch any day. But right now, my number three is guys. Have I ever told you about a man named Paul Verhoeven? Uh, well, he's not just a man; he's a god. And he makes films for us weaklings. <laughs> and in 2016, he made a film called L, And that's my number three. I absolutely love this movie. I, like, it's one of those situations where the more I think about it, the more divorced I am from the hype surrounding it and my anticipation of just seeing a new Paul Verhoeven movie. Like I was probably predestined to leave L happy just by sheer... That's a hype in and of itself, a yeah. new Paul Verhoeven. Paul Verhoeven movie because how long has it been since his last film? Yeah, I think Black Book came out in two thousand seven. Exactly, and so he did some like, weird project in between, but they weren't real feature films. It's so. been it's been nearly a decade. Yeah, and he not only returns with a great film, but he returns with a movie much like Black Book that totally, in my opinion, shuts up his uh, naysayers because he, like, I, I do think throughout all of his films. Uh, is a confident hand and mind network that knows exactly what they're portraying and has such a 
firm grasp on all the material. And that's why a lot of people can hate his movies because he's so steadfast in, um, you know, what he does. And L is no exception. It's anchored by an amazing performance, in my opinion, by Isabel Huppert. Um, it's a movie I will never stop thinking about. I, I always return to little moments and what they mean um, from, you know, her in the bathtub literally swatting away blood um, in a leisurely-like way instead of the usual, like, shower rape scene, which sounds weird, but, like, you know, like the rape genre in and of itself is kind of becoming this little niche uh, genre of film to the point where we now have cliches in rape films. Uh, The visual trope of washing yourself yeah. in the shower. Yep. Yeah. Um and 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 here all those tropes are thrown out the window um for the most part and they the and, and if they're not then they're stared at head on with such distinction and persecution and we're given a character that has to endure all of this and yet also has to put up with everybody who's ever seen a rape movie <laughs> and criticize her for not acting like the character in those movies instead of her own. And and I just think it's such a wonderful uh, movie. I think it's kind of astounding when you can have a movie about such a specific event that is, I wouldn't say exclusive to the gender of female, but certainly predominant in that gender yeah. and take such a f- fierce female character. And yet, at the end of the day, also makes something I think that's pretty universal when it comes to... Um, defending your beliefs and trying and and trying to learn the true lesson of life of not having to define your own meaning of happiness to other people because if you do that then it's just the snake swallowing its tail mm-hmm. and you're never actually going to achieve it. Yeah. This film also too uh really delves into the interesting arena of the non-innocent protagonist to yeah. I mean L is just a character that you see shadows throughout the film and then you get blatant examples of her not necessarily being a great person or no. doing great actions throughout the film. Yeah. And it's uh, it's interesting portrayal of, of this story because uh, on one hand, you're feeling for her in many different parts. And on the other hand, you're like, oh, she's not that great of a person. So, yeah. I mean, one of the first things she does post uh, the traumatic event is spy on her neighbor and masturbate to his image uh, through the window like without his consent so to speak and you know that sounds like such an innocent act you know in a lot of ways because I would say who among us hasn't shall we say used our mental images of people that probably did not give us permission to think about them in that manner. I'm just saying, like, that's a human thing. Whether you're masturbating or not, that's up to you. (laughs) But I'm just saying that's a human thing. Um, But this takes that in the face of such a starkly, uh, I would say, real and uh, unfortunate immoral act and we're we have to reconcile with that and what i like about that is that it forces i mean in in an age when we still have to debate the validity of college rape cases mm-hmm. um like for us to see a movie where it trusts its audience to know what's right and wrong or at least to be able to make that judgment call for yourself and um it, it reminds me of something like the wolf of wall street you know the, the wolf of wall street centers around a protagonist where it doesn't have to tell you that jordan Belfort 
therefore it is a bad person. You should watch that movie <laughs> and come to that conclusion. Wow, if, I want to be that guy. And if you don't, then it says something about you. And somebody could also watch this movie and think, like, Elle had it coming. Or, well, clearly she didn't mind it, so therefore it was never a bad thing or something. And obviously that's insane and whatnot. But there are going to be people they're going to be people who would think that and um, i know it's a little bit yeah okay um not directly speaking about l but just because you brought that up about jordan belford yeah. is like would you say that that character that 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 dramatization of that character is sort of like this generation's gordon gecko well i mean that's kind of i mean in a silly parallel yeah well i was gonna say just because it's a stock market film yeah but i mean he's such a such a boy i haven't actually ever seen wall street like all the way through it is not as uh exciting or as good of a film as people give it credit for. and from what i understand from the two people like the uh the fictionalized version of you know gordon gecko is like you know the tagline greed is good i feel like that's mostly his biggest sin like jordan belfort is a person who seems much more predatory in nature when it yeah. comes to all facets of life not just but money i understand what you're saying a little yeah. bit too sad is jordan belfort is someone that this ruthless people, amoral yeah, like people kleptocratic asshole but someone that people could watch in the, in the same breath people could watch and See someone who they think is inspiring to them at the I gotta same slip time. My hair back and get a suit. Well, no, I mean suit, suit. somebody who found a way to become rich in an era where you shouldn't be able to do that by yeah. yourself, not being in a family or not knowing people, or you just find a way to game the system and mm-hmm. take advantage of people and have what a lot of, uh, in fact, probably most, if not all, billionaires have where you cannot be a billionaire if you're a good person. I will say one crucial difference that I think might be apparent, so let me know if I'm wrong, since I haven't... Talking about the what? I was going to say between Jordan and Gordon. Yeah. Is that... um, (laughs) Jordan Gordon. um, Is that I don't know about Wall Street, but I know... The the film The Wolf of the Wall Street. So I'm not talking about any real life matters, so mm. to speak. But the fictionalized version in the movie, I think, shows Jordan in a positive light at the beginning. So I do think that movie is also trying to say that we're all Jordan Belfort if we're given access or keys to the kingdom, so yeah. to speak. I don't know if Gordon Gecko is he just evil from the very start. I mean, it's kind of hard because you fall into the character when he's at the height of his that's what power. i mean so, so yeah it's a, so that's although different. you do see um if you if you wanted to compare jordan belfort to somebody to charlie you, sheen i was gonna say yeah. you probably could can compare him a lot more to charlie sheen's yeah. character mm-hmm. i didn't mean to derail your, your... no you did sorry <laughs> I'm just um but yeah final thoughts on l i absolutely loved it i'm still reeling in my mind from all the little moments from uh the the the, the rapist uh, final line of why and the implications of that um, to all just like putting all that aside it's also a darkly funny movie I mean I think there are a lot of moments that, that dinner scene yes I was going to say that dinner scene um, her eating a toothpick like these are moments that like I didn't want to see come you know and then they happen and I still have to laugh at it especially and, when at least us as the audience there's really nothing wrong or bad about the yoga instructor who's just yeah happens to be she just got caught in this yeah. weird trap so much like Elle in her apartment mm. oh boy uh but anyway uh i absolutely love l and i love it as much as a film itself 
as I do as a reintroduction to Paul Verhoeven, because I do think he's still to this day criminally undersung with his with regards to his entire career. And I think Elle is a great reminder of how this has always been there, but now he just made it even more blunt uh, for his viewers to get lost in. So, absolutely, L. Good stuff. So, my number three is Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. Holy shit. That was one of my honorable mentions that I didn't say because I was this, like, oh, wait a minute. This this, this film, this, this, this sensuous, satisfying puzzle box of a film is just so fucking good. I love this film. I love how it's structured. Oh my god, I, I haven't I haven't watched a film that was that that, that followed that did that. It it, it comes across as it, it's formulaic almost in, in, in sort of like how it how how it's almost like a relay race of a mystery that you like you thought you you thought you saw this scene the first time from the one way that it could be portrayed, but then later on you realize, like, oh, there's actually more behind the scenes of that scene that fully augmented and changing. It's so... Absolutely. It's so Which well then done. means that you can't watch the first act the same way again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a wonderfully twisting and, labyrinth and, of and, a movie. And, and so in that way, it's like it's impossible to see this film... It, it, it's impossible to see this film the same way twice, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I love that. Um... I thought there were great performances. I thought the cinematography was absolutely gorgeous. I thought that what what I enjoyed about it most was that it was able to and just another another quick aside on this is like this when this film came out like I there was a lot of word of mouth buzz about it. Like I saw people like on my social media feed who I would never take to be like serious or like very particularly savvy not not as an indictment of them but you know, not not the most adventurous yeah. sort of like cinema goers who were like trying to corral their friends to go see The Handmaiden. Yeah. I wonder what they heard about it. <laughs> I don't know what what they heard about what they they sought to get out of it. But like, I got out a really fucking great film that managed to find a way to um, positively portray um, a, a homosexual relationship. In a way that wasn't chaste, but also did not feel exploitive to the male gaze. Well, what's wonderful about those sex scenes? <laughs> um, no, but seriously, as far as what's what I think is great about them is that on the like, if you isolate the scenes themselves, yeah. and then you just upload them to RedTube, then don't you, do that. <laughs> yeah, wait, hold on, guys. <laughs> I'm not advocating that. <laughs> That's copyrighted. Um, (laughs) But if you were to do something like that on the – yes, like in its own context, it certainly has this uh, exploitative feel to it. Mm -hmm. But in the context of the entire canvas, Mm -hmm. which is completely based on a very performative gaze – it is so freaking amazing, in my opinion, when you see that unfold and you you realize just how much is You're happening, gamed, even yeah. when it's happening. And, yeah. and I absolutely, I it, this was basically number seven or number eight on my list. I, yeah. I absolutely love this movie. Yeah. And fuck you, Magnolia Pictures, for not releasing a Blu-ray. They're only releasing a DVD, yeah. and they release Blu-rays the for fuck? other movies. So I don't know why they this thought is really... this is one of the greatest shot films this is becoming a, a more common thing where films that are made for people who are going to buy a film yeah. 
because of the quality of the print or, or the definition of it. I mean, you're not going to have people just casually walking through Target picking up the handmade in front Today I was at Target and I saw they had the DVD of Frank and Lola, but not the Blu-ray, which I do know exists. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, okay, and that's a very good example because I'm like, what person who wants Frank and Lola <laughs> wants to buy a a DVD encoded at like 7 megabytes per second? And that's very nerdy, but I stand by that. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is something that maybe like Criterion should pick up or Mondo. Sadly, some, some type of that's of not going to happen for a while because Magnolia has been very. That's why I'm pissed off because at first I'm like, oh, you know, but I've been who maybe I saw who released alone. Yeah, um, it'll take a while then because they're pretty. They have their titles and they do not get rid of them. Mm. Um, but but and it just makes no sense because they release most, if not all, they release Joe Swanberg's Drinking Buddies, a improvised lo-fi. Comedy shot on handheld cameras on Blu-ray, which I have, and I love that film. But like, I, I don't need that 1080p more than I need the exquisite cinematography of these landscapes uh, in the handmade. It just makes no fucking sense. Maybe, maybe Park ended up pissing them off somehow. I don't. I don't, yeah, I don't maybe, know. Maybe there's some low key the shade going on behind the. the, sh- the the only saving grace is that the handmaiden uh, did extremely well in. Um, South Korea, I think. Yeah. Um, and to the point where, A, there's like a three-hour cut that exists, too, and I'm excited for that, possibly. Um, and, B, it's really easy if anybody's into uh, region-free players to get a, uh, a disc from another region that would be actually in Blu-ray. So yeah. it's not a complete lost cause, but it's just frustrating when movie companies are weirdly in between catering to people who will buy their shit and people who actually know their shit. It's one of those moments yeah. where you have to like ask, what is their long game? Like what, 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 what's their, apparently death of art. Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, that was my number three, the handmaiden. Good stuff. Yeah. I've heard a lot about that film from both of you guys. So oh, yeah. I'll check it out someday. I think you would like it. I'll check it out someday on DVD, I guess. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Well, I bought it on Voodoo because I'm like, I'm not buying it on DVD. At least yeah. here I can get it on 1080p. There you go. So fuck you, Magnolia. So you have it on Voodoo? I do. We'll have to watch it sometime. Yeah, we will. So number three on my list. Uh, first time that uh, this guy has been up on my list. Paul Verhoeven. Nope. Uh, in a while. <laughs> Although uh, his last film uh, that I enjoyed very Nicholas much. Nicholas Winding Refn. No. The last <laughs> film that I enjoyed very much was number one the year uh, that I saw it, which I believe was 2010. Uh, but this film I thought was absolutely wonderful, and that is Woody Allen's Cafe Society. Uh, mm. I thought this was a very uh, kind of going along with what I was talking about with La La Land a little bit ago. This is a film that I just enjoyed watching throughout. This is a beautiful, um, well-colored, well-lit, um, just lovely-looking California shot film that the the view of it would just make somebody smile by looking at some of the the landscapes and some of the shots that they put together in this film the time period with the kind of cars and buildings they have here uh even if a lot of it is just movie magic making cheaply looked things uh that could be the case but uh it just made me happy to watch this film and uh watch the way that the perfectly reserved Jewy performance of Jesse Eisenberg goes throughout, because it's for the most part what it is. Yeah, no, Woody Allen is too old to play these characters, <laughs> so now he's got Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, yeah, and 
I liked it. I thought, for the most part, almost everybody puts on a really strong performance here. I, I will have to echo Nick's sentiments from when we talked about Cafe Society previously, uh, that Steve Carell is maybe one of my least favorite parts of the film, but I still think he's pretty good here and uh, is a part of a lot of the best scenes of the film. So yeah. He doesn't derail it or anything like that for me. I just think that he's somewhat out of step with everybody else. Mm-hmm. Anyway. But I, I like the movie. Yeah. Quite a bit. And uh, this is just so enjoyable for me. And, and um, at a time in my life where I love to watch really good films, but something that will separate a film that I really like and a film that I love could be something as big as I come away just enjoying what I watched. And yeah. that was Cafe Society for me because it's put on a very interesting uh showing of of characters and of the relationships between Jesse Eisenberg and Kirsten Stewart who is great in this film as well. She's amazing. And I love her. Um you know it's interesting we talked about Hollywood and, and La La Land and it's very similar how that how they are you know, different content obviously but the relationships between Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart and then Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are, are somewhat mirror images of each other. Yeah. Uh, and someone else who has slowly been creeping up in Hollywood productions uh, and getting more and more work and I still think is doing a great job in almost everything. is Blake Corey. Lively, yeah, I agree. Thank you for taking my thunder. Uh, Corey Stoll, who is great playing uh, uh, the brother here. He has that wonderful accent here and... Uh, this film, surprisingly, that I liked it so much, ends up with way more gangster feel to it than you would think it should. Yeah. When and I, oh. I was gonna say specifically, uh, the overdone uh, gangster stereotype, but something that actually was really well done here, which was the uh, the murder scene in the uh, the barber shop, which actually was quite graphic compared yeah. to the usual Woody Allen yeah, films. Yeah, no, he's, so. he's never shot anything with that much blood. I think he does a lot of things about violence and brutality, mm-hmm. but uh, never does he ever actually linger on an act, so I was surprised by that. Yeah. Um, but when I saw it in the theater, besides the fact that I, I quite enjoyed it, um, like about a halfway in when I'm like, once I started to realize how much Corey Stoll was in the movie, which he's not in it that much, yeah. but his presence, like, it becomes a whole nother movie. Not a bad way, but when it switches to him, like, that's when I was like, oh, man, Alex is going to love this. And I did. Yeah. You were correct. Yeah. Uh, so much so that this is a film kind of like how Jackie is now. It just kept rising up my list and ended up kind of falling into place at number three. So if you haven't seen it, this is a, a fantastic return to form mm-hmm. for Woody Allen, a, a person who is so hit or miss at the theater. And um, this was definitely a hit for me at number three with Cafe Society. Woohoo! Moving on to number two, getting close to the top. Woohoo! We'll start with Nick. Big old deuce. Well, my number two is a movie that we've talked about. Okay. Uh, a lot of people have talked about. And it'll continue to be talked about through the Oscar season because my number two is without a doubt Moonlight. Um mm. I think this is a tremendous achievement uh, by Barry Jenkins and the three actors that portray Chiron through the ages. Um, it's you know I, I'm not going to talk about it too much because we have done a whole episode on it. But to reiterate what I loved about it, I think it is just <laughs> one of the most stunning portrayals of coming of age I've ever seen with such a specific. Uh, lock on regionality, uh, gender, or sexual orientation, 
um, race that it becomes universal and that and that's ultimately what I loved about it is that it in no way takes anything away from Chiron's specific struggles but they are so specific that it circles back around and everybody who sees this should be able to relate to the idea of you know trying to find oneself and trying to define that in a world that is trying to define you before you can come to that conclusion um, the performances here are outstanding I'm going to talk about one performance in our next episode in particular but i won't so i won't say it what it is here (laughs) (laughs) um but i i think through throughout the three chapters in this story um one of the things i love most about this movie is that i think personally all three uh acts, so to speak, uh, work as their own short film, uh, and then when brought together, create one of the most involving and emotional journeys I've gone on a character, uh, gone with a character on in cinema all last year and probably just in general. I mean, over the years, I, we have not seen <clears throat> this kind of depiction in, I would say, black cinema in in at least quite some time. I'm, I'm not an expert mm-hmm. on black cinema in general. Yeah. Uh, so I won't pretend to say that this is the first or anything like that, but it's certainly the first to really, <laughs> I would say, break uh, barriers and l- reach out to people who probably weren't going to see it in the first place, not to say myself, but mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you know, the fact that it's being honored at the Oscars is actually a good thing because I know we joked a lot last year about how Oscar So White was going to overshadow um and I never thought I'd say this, but luckily Nate Parker turned out to be a rapist, so we don't have to talk about him, and we can actually spotlight actual talent. I'm kidding, I mean, by the way, a, when I, mean, I say luckily, I, I don't mean, actually. He's a that. shitty person to begin with, so like, fuck him. I don't right, care. but I'm just yeah. saying, if that didn't happen, I would have actually foreseen an Oscar campaign that could have overshadowed. Yeah, I, I, I could see at least a timeline. I feel, where that, I that feel like at least one. Tiny of of all the shit that is that has occurred within the past year, I feel like one tiny quadrant of the universe has been <laughs> made right in that moonlight is is yeah. is elevated to the status that it deserves. Right. Because if the Oscars above, are so white, yeah. which they still are, um, and they're only going to choose one movie, which they shouldn't, but they did. Uh, well, I guess no. Hidden Figures was also. So yeah. I mean, it's, it's whatever. But yeah. like, this is absolutely a movie to stand by and to watch. And I think it only gets better every time I've seen it. I saw it three times in the theater. Oh, wow. Um, and it it just like I haven't felt this involved in a love story since I've seen the uh, the before series. Like I I just mm. love to see and and it felt like that too in a lot of ways because oh. it felt like revisiting somebody's life uh, in three different ways as they tried to define themselves um, by how they interact with another human being mm-hmm. and uh, it's just it's just an amazing film and I can't imagine somebody going to see it and not at least reacting to it. I'm sure there's a shithead out there that went and saw it and didn't like it for whatever reason because they're a shithead but um, it's just an amazing movie. Yeah, this is a, a film that I, w- I would say would not usually catch my attention. Uh, but you had told me so much about it uh, early on, and we went to see it. And this is number 12 on my list this yeah. year. So pretty high for for a film like this. And I think it just shows uh, what a great job that Barry Jenkins did. And actually what a fantastic structured film this is. I mean, the, you know, it, it's something that kind of 
falls by the wayside here because of the way that the characters perform. But the editing in this film is just fantastic. Absolutely. And the way it's pieced together is just, just wonderful. Yeah. And um, another comparison to make is that there's certainly a lot of people pointed it out, but I'll point it out as well since I love his films. But um, I haven't seen a good Wan Kar Wai film in a long time. Mm-hmm. And this completely, like if Barry Jenkins is the new Wan Kar Wai, then yes, let him make movies because yes. um, that we need more of those movies and uh, this absolutely stands up with and if I'm saying that then it means I'm saying that he stands up there with one of the greatest filmmakers of all time that's not something that you <laughs> yeah that, that, that you just brandish like like with with no thought whatsoever yeah, yeah. so um, but yeah I, I know Tucson you liked it yes yes yeah. I did yeah so yeah. so so I'm done that yeah. was my number two Moonlight Num- number two is a film that has already been spoken about <gasps> It is Paul Verhoeven's L. I've heard of him. Oh my God. (laughs) Walking out of this film, I I, I think this is a recurring, um, this is sort of a recurring motif uh, in my movie going experience alongside Nick, where we will both like a film and he'll just be wrapped in 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 just enthusiasm about it and i'll just feel totally like (laughs) but i really liked it and that's what l was for me i was just cringing into myself i'm just like i liked it but i don't feel like i was i should have liked it and that way i kind of feel like l and now i even feel worse no like the the feeling you're describing is what makes me like a movie yeah if it pushes me to where i'm like i don't want to admit that i like this then i start shouting how much i love it yeah yeah it's we mentioned this on the on the episode talking about it but something about uh this film that i'm completely agreeing with what you guys are saying is that when you've gotten past everything you've made it through the climax of the film and you're in the denouement it doesn't even let you go there because it throws in the line from the uh (laughs) The, the now widow yeah. of the husband pretty much saying she's known the entire time that her husband was raping you. Yeah. And it's just like, what the fuck? Yeah. And they're so blasé about it. I'm just yeah. like, do I – is this an alien planet? And am, am I just out of touch? Am I, do, am I, am I just square? Do I, if I, I – what? It's Catholic guilt for you. I, I'm, it's fucking – oh, my God. This film is so <laughs> great. This this film is so fucking good, and the question of best Christmas movie ever, by the way. <laughs> Fuck no, stop, Come on, man. Die Hard, always. Oh, uh, okay, so the, the Alan Rickman the, falling off the tower. The, Come on, man. The question at the end of why why he said why, and the fact that we were able to have such a in depth conversation coming out of the theater. And even afterwards, like coming back to the house to record the episode, that it could still be interpreted in so many different ways. Oh my god, it was just I I'm not I'm not doing this film justice. You need to see this film. It, it's already on two of our lists. It is, it is incredible. I still can't and believe it won best foreign film at the Golden Globe. So yeah. a lot of white people are going to go see this. Yeah, <laughs> and not know what it's about. Whoa! <laughs> I still can't believe that we uh, saw the two-hour and forty-minute uh, silence right after. Like we were talking so much about it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's a solid film that I didn't love, but it was. And I, a lot of people really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, but it was like you come off the high of everyone just talking about that film and then you go sit in a two-hour and 40-minute religious film <laughs> yeah man that that could not be any more of a of a, of a reverse coin flip. yes yeah pretty much yeah 
So, but uh, that was my number two L. Excellent. Yeah. So I, I approve. Yeah, there you go. Keeping with the theme of films that we've done Call an episode. For of, no, uh. keep, keeping with the theme <laughs> of doing a, uh, a film for number two that we've talked about in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What this is? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Thank you. Rogue um, One. Uh, no. Rogue One. <laughs> Didn't Rogue. make the list. Yeah. Liked it quite a bit. Didn't make the list. It's gonna be one. My number. Thank you. My number two is First Girl I Loved, which <gasps> uh, I really enjoyed and thought was a fantastic film. Mm. Tucson's animated reactions to it were what made it for the second <laughs> viewing. Oh yeah, it's getting up and like fist pumping in a movie that does not warrant that. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. Um, this for me was probably the most personally engaging film uh, that we saw. Mm. That I saw at least this entire year. I felt like this is something that anybody could watch and really have a relation to if you've gone to high school. Oh, yeah. Because it just hits a lot of notes that are like, oh, shit. Yeah, maybe he did rape. Oh, but. Oh, oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't put that in the yearbook. Oh, no. Oh, the yearbook. Yeah. Everyone's going to see that. So many moments throughout this film that were just done so well, whether it be uh, that amazing final scene with all the parents and the teachers and the kids and the speaking of lawyers and police and um, lying and children being criminals and that. It's just... It's just something that this film feels like it hits so many notes right. And uh, it culminates with that final scene. And then the actual final scene of the film uh, where the main character is in the thrift shop talking with the women, describing for the first time really coming out and saying, I am, in fact, lesbian. And I feel like I just can't tell anybody because even if I do tell somebody, it it gets construed into a million different things and I don't have any idea how to, how to even deal with this now because there's a million fucking things happening and this film just captures that so fucking well. And the little things to here, whether it be the beautiful opening scene uh, at the nighttime little league baseball field with the lights uh, or the use of text messaging on the screen, which was done so much better than that piece of shit with Adam Sandler a few years ago. Or The Shallows. Well, I haven't seen that, so I don't know. But <laughs> It's like a one-minute thing that's just there for plot exposition, if not really. I don't give a fuck. Wow. Thank you, Tucson. Anyways... Uh, <laughs> So th- this was a this was a really fantastic film, and it was a film that I know the three of us and Brian all really enjoyed. So, oh yeah, um, one I'll be watching for for a long time to come because I did purchase it on Vudu. Because who knows if we'll ever see a physical <laughs> copy of this anywhere? But uh, if you have the means, check this out because this is a film that I think most people, if they gave it a chance, would enjoy. It deserves. It's to be viewed, fantastic. Yeah. It actually reminds me of Moonlight in a lot of ways yeah. when it comes to the theme of. Authority figures mishandling a child's problem and only exacerbating it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah very interesting film and uh, something that I will be coming back to uh, for years to come. Mm-hmm. So, we've made it to the top. Can I say something? No. Looks like we, we made it. Yes, you can. Okay, what I want to say is uh, technically, Blake Lively's character in The Shallows <laughs> uses FaceTime and Instagram but never texts. So, fuck you, Tucson. 
So please, uh, Alex, take it away. So we've made it to the top of the mountain. I don't think anyone's going to talk about the shallows as their number one. I hope not. Don't speak for me. <laughs> uh, but it... Wait for the cream. No. <laughs> <laughs> but this has been uh, an interesting year because we've talked about uh, probably at nauseum that this was overall, at least in terms of major releases and blockbusters, kind of a disappointing year. But as, as Nick has mentioned, and, and I've echoed his sentiments throughout as well, there's been a lot of good films this year and a lot of films that are, are worthwhile, even if they weren't the best or anything like that. And um, I'm pretty sure all of us really love our, our number one and uh, have quite a bit to say about it. So, Nick, if you want to start, go ahead. Ooh, wow. Okay. Well, <clears throat> my number one is a late addition to my list. I only saw it technically in 2017, but it was a 2016 film. It just didn't get a proper release onto a home format um, until just now. But I finally caught it. I even watched it twice just to make sure. And it is easily the most striking film I saw last year. It takes viewers on a journey in which they have no idea what's next, but in my opinion, is always rewarded for sticking around and observing. It's a unique cinematic experience, and it can only be described for what it is. So I'll kind of explain it. It's, um, the movie itself is Camera Person by Kirsten Johnson. It's a documentary that came out last year. And what essentially it is, is it is a memoir told in deleted scenes from a cinematographer's uh, collection of deleted scenes from documentaries she shot. Kirsten Johnson is a pretty famous cinematographer for documentarians. She's worked on things like Michael Moore documentaries to even some stuff we saw at uh, Sundance. She shot Trapped. She oh, shot okay. uh, Audrey and Daisy, or we shot footage for it. You know, okay. There could be more than one, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, from everything from A to Z and whatnot. So she essentially set out to create a, a memoir of her own life by what she's seen and what stayed with her that were never actually shown before. So everything you see in this is a essentially deleted scene from situations that completely span the entire globe, um, the entire embodiment of the human spirit. I mean, you see a boxer after he lost his match for the Golden Gloves. You see a woman describe uh, her surroundings in Bosnia as being a victim of the rape camps. You hmm. see uh, a, a birthing... Uh, nursery in a foreign country that's blanking on me but you know everything to even a brief moment of kirsten shooting her own kids in her living room uh so it it is such in my opinion an an effective and affecting uh movie that like somehow she did it she actually pulled off (laughs) the feet of being a memoir about herself despite the fact that she's she's only in one frame of the film. Every other moment, she's behind it. And that in in and of itself says a lot about her and what she was able to shoot and what she got away with. Why did she shoot that? Yeah. Yeah. Now, three things I have to ask. First question, 
How long of a time span is it from her Roughly first... Roughly 20 years. Okay. The footage itself spans from, yeah. Second question, Does is yep. there any sort of narration used throughout? Absolutely not. The first okay. draft of it included her narrating, and okay. rightfully so, the people who watched it, a lot of people, actually she name dropped some people that I, I know and respect, but I'm blanking on, but mm-hmm. filmmakers watched it and said, this is all great, but your narration is actually killing it. Like, you know, and so she uh, got rid of all narration. Okay. So, I mean, there's dialogue in the movie for sure, but it is literally just a mosaic uh, tapestry going from one random location to another. How does it transition? So is it, it's, it's a, it kind of to go off what Tucson's saying. It's yeah. like a very, almost like eclectic collection. Yeah. Okay. It'll literally go from something she probably shot five years ago in New York to something she shot 20 years ago in... Bosnia, you know, like it'll, and it'll jump back and forth. It'll revisit locations as well. So you don't always, it's not like when you leave one, you'll never see it again. Yeah. And I haven't seen this film and I'm sorry if I'm asking like banal questions that no, could no, no, no. easily be answered by just like watching the I film. I want people to but watch I'm, it. But, so. I'm, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm intrigued because I haven't heard of it before mm-hmm. and I would like to actually see this. I bought um, the Criterion. It came out yesterday. Now, when you're saying that it includes like transitions from scenes that she may have like shot like five years ago to like almost over 20 years ago, like juxtaposed directly against one another. Mm-hmm. How do you, how are you able to hone in on when this, those scenes might've been actually like filmed? Is there a timestamp? Is there, there is never a timestamp. There is only a location stamp. Okay. So every time a, maybe as a savvy viewer of formats, I'm kind of able to at least gauge what's more recent and what's not because the aspect ratio changes. And so does the actual fidelity of the master, of the film that we're seeing. So it's like, obviously something with a pretty low MPEG recording is something from long ago. And then there's the crisp high def thing that she's been shooting with her. Um, there's, there's, uh, I won't even say that just yet, but of more newer footage, but in between every single shot is it, it'll on a black screen. It'll say the location. So when you return to that location, it'll still state it once again. And then you just go back into it. Um, so, uh, th- this is probably a pretty obvious question, but um, so you talk about this being a, a memoir of her career, life, whatever you want, want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the placement of the scenes throughout, is it pivotal to the success of this film in terms of starting from A going to the final scene that you're shown? I would say so. I, okay. It's it's not something you can trace out. Like uh, you know, you'd have to do like some. It's co- not memento. Well, no, I was gonna say you'd have to do some like coherence type shit and like study it to truly figure out what the timeline is of what you're watching. Mm-hmm. But all of that's moot because she's edited it in a way that is so graceful, in my opinion. Because it can go from something that's simple, and you can very easily watch a scene in it and not understand why it's stuck with her just like you'll watch the next scene and you'll be like holy shit that was amazing you know so it's really going to speak to different people in different ways but then she also bridges it together with even tinier snippets so one of my favorite transitions is when she goes from one major scene that i kind of forget what that scene exactly is but into a montage of walking scenes where it is going for about four seconds a piece where we see a, a picture of people walking into a mosque of her walking with a professor in a library of her um, but like just and so it has this almost like um, Koyanastasi 
feel to the transitions, not to the actual meat of the movie that itself. It instantly made my ears perk up. Yeah. I'm just like, Yo! But one with such a self-reflexive uh, viewpoint that it becomes extremely personal. In the walking montage, it ends because she's walking through a library, and every time you think that she's not in the movie, so to speak, it, it always breaks that notion that she's never, that she's somehow not there or invisible because that montage ends because the professor goes, watch out, and then all of a sudden, she clearly she tripped over something and the footage goes black. I mean, you know, it, it is, it's all, I think, embodied in the opening title sequence, which is extremely simple, but literally is <laughs> one of the most awe-inspiring things I've seen in a movie where she is a very simple shot. She's filming what looks to be like a road and it's kind of a dark night but not quite night, maybe dusk or whatever. And the shot itself is simple and there's really nothing to it. And then lightning strikes so large that all of a sudden we hear her behind the camera like gasping all to it as if she didn't realize that that was going to happen and then a few more beats and then all of a sudden she starts sneezing for some reason like and it is just this most spontaneous and and everything is truly happening in front of her and she's absorbing it and it also interwines um other things like there's a periodic check-in on her mother who is clearly suffering from Alzheimer's and um, oh okay <clears throat> yep, and you know that need to document certainly yeah. is extremely potent there, which also turns into the only time when she puts herself on camera when her mom asks how she looks in the mirror, so she turns it to the mirror, and I, it's just like thinking about it, it's just one of the most powerful things. Uh, I talked about uh, including narration. Is there any other? non-diegetic music or anything that's included here at all? No, it is all, like, every sound comes from the shots themselves. Okay. Um, I mean, the shots themselves are busy, and they range from her driving in a street of Afghanistan trying to get a shot of a prison, which is clearly in defiance of the soldiers that are standing out there staring at her because the taxi driver is trying to get her that shot, but also says, I can only do so much with my car and where I can get you. Um, And it ranges from there. Uh, I'll say one more scene that I love about the movie before I stop rambling about it. Um, One of my favorite shots that completely show how unpretentious I think this movie is, because I think on the surface, it sounds like a ridiculous, self-indulgent experience. Like, why would we care about your deleted scene that you say is your memoir? But uh, I just think the humanity shines through at every scene. There's one scene where she is filming a friend of hers who is also a documentary filmmaker. Um, and her friend is on uh, what seems to be her bed and she's going through items. And as you listen to her friend talk and Kirsten is not turning off the camera. And I think to a point where even her friend is getting annoyed because her friend is talking about apparently her mother had just committed suicide recently. And the friend is going through the mementos on the bed. And at first you think she has it all together but then the more Kirsten won't turn off the camera, not that she's getting visibly upset with Kirsten herself, but getting more and more unable to conceal her own emotions, and it just shows the power that the camera has to kind of unlock that true uh, feeling to the point where she gets so flustered at you know and overwhelmed with emotion and and you know it's not breaking the camera and whatnot and all of a sudden kirsten finally turns away to the camera leaves the sound on but turns the camera to the window and there's a pretty snowy scene outside whenever as she's still talking and all of a sudden 
a blizzard-like event happens where snow on the roof completely caves down onto the window in a, like, hugely... And then the person on the bed, who was previously just crying, starts laughing because she's like, did you get that on camera? Like, like it is this moment that you cannot make up mm-hmm. that somehow got captured on film. And I think will always mean something to both of them mm-hmm. and to, to her in general about how temporal feelings are and how time can kind yeah. of uh, spontaneously change our perspective on things. And so. to just be on the periphery of that as an audience member yeah. watching that, you, can, you, you, you can't truly understand what it means to be in that room, but yeah. to me- merely be able to sort of like graze against it, you're able to appreciate the profundity of it. At that moment, it's like everybody's thinking the same thing. Instead right. of being an observer, now we're all, yeah, for sure. Right, yeah. Um, and one of the other things that she's fascinated by, and this is literally just one of the like dozens of you know things she captured, is there's a reoccurring interview with a young boy who lost sight in one of his eyes um, in Afghanistan due to, I think, a bomb. And the image of him describing the loss of his sight is, in my opinion, powerful because I also have sight problems. And right now I'm dealing with the fact that one eye is perfect, the other eye is a cataract. Um, and But the when you just think about the mental image of what a camera person has to do, especially in the olden days, of peering through a, you know, a viewfinder with one eye, like I genuinely think she saw herself in some ways in this boy because he kind of had a pretty upbeat attitude about how it's still clear as day to him what's happening. And um, yeah, there's just so many fascinating stories throughout the whole thing um i absolutely think it works as a memoir like when i see her trying to get that shot of the afghanistan uh, prison i think she's a courageous person when i see her documenting the last days of her mother's life as she deals with alzheimer's i think she's a compassionate person and i think it's clear that she like you are in no way invisible if you are behind the camera, and that is just as noble of a uh, profession and, and a way of life as the person who is in the spotlight. Um, and it's just an amazing movie about how we shape our beliefs and uh, what we can see and what we can't. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's Camera Person by Kirsten Johnson. Fantastic. And now Criterion has an edition out. Look at that. Look at that. And you nice. own it. What a sucker. So, number one for me this year is Moonlight. Yeah. I deliberately did not say anything when you were discussing Moonlight because yeah. I just wanted to save it for, for this final thing. I I think that just covering uh, a couple of things that I mentioned um, on the episode that we did earlier this year, um, I think that it's very important for films like Moonlight to be able to exist. And not only that, but also not just to exist, but to thrive. Because I feel like they open a window into um, the dimensionality of the black experience in, 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 in different avenues that we otherwise would not know of or even think to interrogate. Especially when it comes to um, the black experiences as, as it intersects with uh, sexuality. Because in that way, it's like sort of like masculinity and femininity are sort of like walled off on one another or even heterosexuality in, in, in a lot of ways. It just, it just, it, it seems so route and it seems so, so, so burficated into like these two different ways when really that's not how sexuality in, in the black experience, let alone the human experience works out in that way. And so I feel like this film like 
it's it's important that that it, it it's able to exist and that it's able to thrive and that as it is. Um, that being said, I can understand some criticisms um, from a lot a lot of critics that think that it sort of plays into. Um, in, in, in the depiction of Chiron and his uh, evolution and sort of the depiction of his relationship with, uh, with, with his best friend in, in that sort of way that a lot of people take umbrage with the fact that of how, how chaste it, it's, it's depicted. They feel like it, it, it's sort of like sanitizing a, 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 a relationship in that way, like a physical relationship. And I can – I can, I can I, I know I know I know I, I don't I don't agree with them necessarily like I can I can sort of like see where they're coming from in in that way but I feel like they also probably it, think you shouldn't punch Nazis <laughs> oh we'll get to that um someday um but I I, I think that I'm the, sorry the, they're all right the, the criticisms no don't don't derail me on this okay anyway the the criticisms in in that way I feel like highlight not a fault with with Moonlight, but rather that there need to be more films of this ilk that are will, yeah. willing to go in directions that this film chose not to. Not that it couldn't, but that it chose not to. It's, it's like it's it's fine. To why not I always I wouldn't say roll my eyes because it's valid criticism mm-hmm. of any film that doesn't bow down to diversity because that is a problem. But at a certain point, there's an there's an end point where that criticism loses its meaning. Right. When you channel it at one movie in particular, yeah. when you, you, when you have to be mad at the system. Otherwise, when, if you just channel it at one movie, it's not really fair to the movie, and it's pointless. And in the end, when you saddle one film with the burden of of what an entire medium should be capable of, and frankly, that's Sharon's biggest problem. Is being burdened with yeah. this perception that he must live up to what has yeah. come before him. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that for me, at least, one of the most memorable opening opening scenes for a film was in in, in Moonlight, just for having uh, Marshala Ali uh, driving up and having that that song like "Every Nigger Is a Star," which is a song that is like dates all the way back from like nineteen seventy. 1978 that has only recently come back into resurgence for the fact that it was it was sampled as the intro to Kendrick Lamar's like third album and it's just so the choice of that song resonates with me so much me too because <laughs> the, the, the choice of that song resonates with me so much because I just feel like it, it it immediately hits upon like the the complicated dichotomy of 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 that word and how it it is able to permeate in its meaning depending on what context you actually give it into is like you're able to it, the negativity is still in there but somehow you found a way to contextualize it in in a in a in a, in, a, in a totally inverse proportion i feel like that it sort of like belies the complexity that that Moonlight is able to approach, if, if that makes any sense, yeah. because this film is just, it, it, it's absolutely beautiful. It, it, it is a, it, it transports you into the experience of this kid who's just trying to find himself in a world, like you said, that is trying to go out of its way to define him. And yeah, it, it, it all, all the performances in this film were, were incredible. I thought that Marsh, Marshall, 
Ali was great. I thought that Janelle Monet, even, even though she had like a relatively small small role, I, I think yeah. it's like, but she was just she just owned it. She's, I, I I I love her as a musician. I I love her even more as an actress. How about, how, what yeah. a, what a what a finish to the year for her with this role and then in, in hidden figures as yeah. well. Hell yeah, yeah. she's going yeah. places. Yeah, I I am so looking forward to seeing. Gonna make that Monet. <laughs> I am so looking forward to seeing uh, more films from this director, and I'm looking forward to seeing where these actors will go from here. Yeah, I just hope the next film is less black. It's just you know, yeah, there's, it's there's just, too many. Yeah, I mean, it's just not, it's not for everyone, and you know, I just think that's kind of that's kind of a weakness. It's not. I mean, for they everyone. can have this, but I mean, they you know. can have it. They can have it, but like, like what? It... Oh yeah. boy. All film, all film goers matter. <laughs> Factually, not true. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I'm gonna go walking in the moonlight with you. <laughs> all right. So my number one uh, was a film that myself and Nick saw at Sundance, and it's a film that I absolutely fell in love with the moment we walked out of the theater. I actually put my arm around Nick and told Dude. him how glad I was that we came to the festival because Aww. what a great story, right? Up until the point that we saw this film, I had enjoyed the vast majority of the films we had seen, but I felt like I hadn't seen a film there that was going to make me remember seeing a specific film at the festival. I thought that they were going to, at some point, somewhat blur together and there wouldn't be a film or two that stands above the rest and, and really makes me look back to going to the 2016 festival or remember a specific film. Uh, but this film for me absolutely uh, captured that uh, and stood at number one throughout the year and really was never in doubt of losing uh, that spot. Uh, and that was the uh, biographical drama film, which was Christine, uh, centered around uh, Christine Chubbuck, a 1970s TV reporter from Florida. Um, this is just an absolutely fantastic film. Uh, another one that a lot of people have not seen, uh, a film that was not really available for people to see that much. No. And it's uh, on a couple of streaming services now, so it's out there if you want to, but you have to seek it out. It's not going to find you. And um, for me, ultimately, that's that's... That sucks because I think this is a fabulous film. Uh, abs the only film in the entire year, which I usually have a couple at least, the only film this year I gave five out of five to, but I just thought this was an absolute just home run fabulous film uh, that is highlighted by a just wonderful performance that got just left in the dust by Rebecca Hall. Yeah. Um, something that just really, not even that it wasn't mentioned is uh, being somebody in award season, but wasn't even thought of as a potential nominee. Yeah, so, I, it, I may call me an optimist, but I really thought after seeing this movie that like that was going to be a shoe in for a for an actress performance. Like, yeah. Not that I thought it was ever going to be nominated for best picture, or whatever, but I thought it was going to be one of those that creeped in there just based on the sheer performance alone. Uh, and boy, was that wrong. Yeah, no, and. Um, that's the other thing is there are a lot of really strong performances sprinkled in here, uh, including Michael C. Hall, who plays a very interesting character. But but ultimately, this film has a couple things here for it. A, 
I think the writing and the way that the story is told is absolutely fantastic. Uh, the production design here, uh, trying to hit the new station in the 1970s, I think is absolutely phenomenal to go along with the costume design and, uh, just the lighting and the theming here. Uh, this was just totally a home run from a visual perspective. And now we get to Rebecca Hall's character of Christine and it just brings out so many different character traits throughout here that, that really made me want to watch her character, which is interesting when you think about that this is a dramatization of a real-life character who had a very interesting story that people know very little about. But, we, that being said, dramatization, like a, a lot of this is uh, at least sort of created, if not more just of an expanded upon. Yeah. Into what happened, or yeah. what could have possibly happened. Sure, but... At the same time, just as a film, even if you're just watching this as as a, if you want to even call it a fictional retelling of a bi- biographical story, you see Rebecca Hall's Christine character uh, go through so many different things that, that make you feel something for her, whether it be struggles with the time that she's living in, with femininity, with... Uh, just having to deal with a a man's world, people wanting to do very uh, simplistic journalism at that point, uh, and definitely showing uh, a, a delve into what has, for the most part, become what um, major uh, media journalism is, which is just trying to hit the big headlines that are going to get the most eyeballs. So uh, it's just a very terrific film uh something that i watched and immediately connected with and thought was a a great performance by rebecca hall uh a lot of just just great scenes um the one that always stood out to me uh thinking back was the the scene where she believes she's going on a date uh with michael c hall which is something that she had been wanting for such a long time and wanting to try to get her life going in a direction where she has a person that can be there and be her companion. And he basically takes her to a, a therapy session. And it's just, and who it's just one of the most heartbreaking I know, things, it, you know, who hasn't been in that situation. It's, um, <laughs> but just to, just to try to take myself out of my, my own body and, and put myself in her shoes. You're in a, in a time in the 1970s, where depression, specifically among females, is completely not even going to be fucking touched with a 10-foot pole. And, and yet running rampant. <laughs> yeah. Because there's nobody <laughs> here to listen. Yeah. And, and she's seen maybe her only saving grace, and it's just to be brought to this place where she's told that she's not, not good at being a, a human. And it's just, it's just such a impactful scene to me and part of it that makes me think that i still like this film as much as i do is is the fact that we had the the crazy opportunity to see the the um new age documentary kate plays christine immediately following this where it follows the same kind of story line about christine chubbick in a much different way and almost flat out rejects something what christine is trying to do which is interesting to see that um and I like this f- film obviously more, although Kate plays Christine is also a very good film. 
Uh, but yeah, Rebecca Hall, uh, Michael C. Hall, and uh, this film by Antonio Campos was just just absolutely wonderful. For sure, the very tippity top of my list this year. If I can say two things about this movie. Okay. I quite enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is... Uh, if any piece of media can remind me of one of my top five favorite shows of all time, which is Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, uh, it's it's worth re- remarking, and that is what Christine actually felt like to me. It felt like uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman channeled through Christine Chubbuck, which is to essentially watch a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown and uh, in the age of media as it completely destroys somebody's soul. Um, so like, I, just putting that out there for that esoteric reference, if you get that, then you'll want to see this. But on another broader note... Uh, I, I heard some criticism that this movie is fucking cheap and exploitative, and I do not subscribe to that theory. And this is the very theory that Kate plays Christine also, I think, tries to argue, which I think you can enjoy that movie and this movie, even though one kind of rejects the other. But um, the re- like, and this is maybe sounds cynical, but uh, the reason why I don't find any of these so far <laughs> pieces on Christine Chubbuck's life is. To say that it's exploitative is to completely denounce why Christine Chubbuck is famous, because she herself (laughs) did the most exploitative thing (laughs) to herself in service of exploitation. So, like, if anything, all these pieces are doing are servicing her and trying to say, hey, we didn't listen then. We're at not least, now. Well, yeah. but at least we can at least say we're sorry now and try to investigate mm. where we failed. Maybe well, where, whatever. I mean, but and, and this it's film, just kind of silly to me. This film, in a in a much uh, softer tone, than it, it's not something that is just on the surface the entire time. But this film definitely gets into bullying big time. Yeah, and, and the 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 as you know, we talk about with Moonlight, which that is a, a big part of that film. Uh, and a lot of other things, obviously. But here you have Christine, who's in this very uh, male-dominated era. I mean, she's pretty much in the same exact spot uh, as... Um, God damn it. I'm just struggling on names today. This usually is not my problem. Wow. I'm thinking of Anchorman. Uh, Veronica. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for real. Like, yeah. It's the same kind of time period, the same situation. Uh, but just a, a, well, a much different take and on, there the on something like that. Parallel yeah. in the movie itself, uh, yeah. in which her colleague, uh, played by, I forget her name, but she was in Orange is the New Black okay. um, and the new show Easy on Netflix. Anyway, uh, but she, we see, advances through her career by the end of the movie, mm-hmm. and she does that presumably because she is a woman who doesn't speak out and doesn't, yeah. doesn't actually make you know her, and, and then that's a sad uh, duality there. Yeah. Well, and and another thing that that I really connected with throughout this film is it was interesting just to watch some of the the stories that Christine was actually doing because <laughs> some of the most bland and uninteresting looks into humanity that you could think of are actually interesting and yeah. it's not going to draw hundreds of people to their TV sets but it's probably a lot more interesting than seeing a who done it again about who shot somebody at the Florida mall. Like it's just, it's, she was trying to do something that she felt was important and it's just 
not something that is ever accepted in mainstream media. And um, at least at at that time where there are not nearly as many sources or outlets as there are obviously in modern culture. So uh, the type of stuff she was also interested in could be on TV only if it was treated as a joke, because like that was actually one of Johnny Carson's greatest strengths uh, was that he would have normal people on and ask them about whatever their silly hobby, like the lady who collected potato chips and, you know, all that kind of thing. But he did it with a charming and non-condescending way. But here, when she asked essentially the world, but the the network itself to, like, take it seriously, mm-hmm. that, that's almost what's the laughing matter to everybody else. And by association, what she, of course, projects herself into that situation as well, that yeah. they don't take her seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's uh yeah, this is this is a film that really delves deeper into a, a story that people only know the headline of. Yeah. And and even though it just does uh pretty and it, I feel like it's pretty universally portrayed that this is not a uh word for word retelling of Christine's actual story. This is for sure a uh dramatization of it, but still uh, I feel like it's just as effective knowing more about the actual person than just the final act. It's in the same vein for me as something like The Social Network, which is that's a great movie because of the liberties it takes. Not because I mean, obviously, there's a lot in The Social Network itself that is actually based on real court transcript, but in general, that the the character of Mark Zuckerberg is as much a fabrication as it is a replication. And, yeah. and same thing happens here because here, really, the only thing we know uh, as far as what we can amass from just watching things is the end of her journey. So mm-hmm. here, it's 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 all about what the journey entailed in one light, possibly. Yeah. yeah. Great film. Something I'll, I'll be watching. Same thing as uh, the other films on my list for years to come and uh, definitely a highlight of 2016. If you out there have a top six list from uh, this previous year, we'd love to see it. Yeah. Let, read it. And also, uh, we could talk about it on, yeah, on a future can. episode. So always feel free to send that along to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to go to the next part of uh, this two-part episode on uh on our feelings on the year 2016 we'll be talking about uh 15 separate categories all giving uh our feelings on what was either the best or or the worst or or just in general what our feelings were about that specific question and uh it's it's something that uh we had a lot of fun with last year and i think we're gonna have a lot of fun with again so sure did oh yeah it's the best so you can find that on the same page at filmtankshow.com or on iTunes or Stitcher as well. So, from Nick Cheney to San Egan, myself, Alex Diekman, thank you for joining us for this first part of our 2016 year in review, and we'll catch up with you next time. <laughs>